morning, everybody. Uh, it's good, good, good to be back. I thank you. Last Sunday, I went with my dad to his 70th birthday getaway. Uh, classic grandfather, father fashion. My brothers and I planned this trip, bought tickets, arranged the flights and the hotels and all this kind of thing. And, and then for Father's Day, we told him what he was getting for his birthday. <laughs> and then he took over. He, he's, he took over the whole trip, and he got the room, and he got the tickets, and he paid for all the meals and all this, all this stuff. We just had a really terrible time. <laughs> it's really awful. Boston was, is a cool city, and the Red Sox won every time we were there. It's because we were there that, that they won. And uh, I'm going to wear that jersey every day because it's, it's working. Uh, anyway, it's, it's really good to be back. I would also like to say uh, thank you to the person who brought sour cream cake uh, uh, Dunkin' Donuts this morning. Um, I cannot resist them, and I have the heartburn now to prove it, even as we speak. So thank you, and, and uh, maybe not thank you, but that's all right. Self-control, self-control. Okay. It's really good to be back with you. Matthew chapter 8 is where we are this morning, if you have not already turned there. If you're our guest, to know, you need to know that we're going through the whole gospel of Matthew, not today, a little bit at a time. Well, we started last Christmas and uh, with Matthew chapter 1, and now we're in Matthew chapter 8, this many, many months later, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 17 today. Matthew is, uh, it's called Matthew's Gospel. He's explaining the good news about, about Jesus, and he's giving us his rendition of, the, of the, the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus and its implications for all of our lives. In Matthew 1 through 4, he gives us the backstory, where, he come, where he's come from, where his parents are, his, his lineage, and all the implications of that, and how his ministry began. And then Matthew 5 through 7, he gives us a long sermon that Jesus gave where Jesus explained what it means to be one of his members in the kingdom of God, what those attributes are and what it looks like for those attributes to flesh himself out in life and ministry. That's the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And today we are now in Matthew 8 and we're, we're beginning to see Jesus' ministry unfold. So if you've been with us, like you remember at the very um, end of Matthew 4, verse 23, it says, Matthew said, Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And then he gives us this long sermon where you will hear the teaching and the preaching. And now we're in chapter 8 where we're going to see um, uh, some examples of Jesus' ministry um, in and around the people. So we'll be in Matthew 8, verse 117. Uh, show of hands. A little interactive, okay? Um, how many of you, either now as a child or when you were a child, got an allowance when you were growing up? Raise, raise your hand. What? No allowances? There are just very, very few. Okay, and none of you got an allowance. Okay. You, did, you got, well, you, you never quite, never mind. Um, <laughs> so sometimes, yes, that, that has worked out, but sometimes, oftentimes it has not. Um, I, d I did not get an allowance either until uh, middle school when I actually learned how to be responsible. Um, and I didn't get one through, through, through that. So when I was in Abbey and Luke's age, all the way through grade school, I did not get one. But in the summer, in the summer, the gloves came off my parents. And uh, I was permitted uh, to, to live within certain boundaries 
um, because I got old enough to ride my bike anywhere in town. Our town was you know, three or four square miles and flat because it was the Mississippi Delta. So I could ride my bike over to, this is going to sound really ritzy until I tell you about it, the Cleveland Country Club, okay, where for $25 a month, you could be a member, okay? And there was a little, you know, pool, and there was a shack, you know, in the summer it would open up, and they'd cook really terrible burgers and sell you popsicles for 25 cents and, and things of this nature. And I was allowed $3 any time I went to the, to the Cleveland Country Club where I would swim and play golf and play tennis for $25 a month, which sounds absurdly like a great deal nowadays, okay? And so I could do that in the, in the summer. And if I didn't spend the money... That day, it rolled over. It was the original rollover plan. And so if I saved it up, I could, like, eat lunch there one day, you know, that week if I, if I rolled over. And I remember the day that I discovered the club sandwich. You know what I'm talking about? Bread. Meat. Bread. Meat. <laughs> Bonus meat. Bacon. And then bread. Now, they had some tomato and some lettuce, but I just took that off because you got bread, meat, bread, meat, bonus meat, bacon, and, and, and bread. We are now at a place in Matthew, chapter 8 and chapter 9. This is the club sandwich of Matthew's gospel. Okay? It is bread, meat, bread, meat, bonus meat, bread. Okay? Chapter 8, 1 through 17 is bread. We've got three miracles in a row that we're going to look at, okay? And then verses 18 through 22, meat. Very, very substantive passage about what it means to follow Jesus, okay? And then we get more bread. We get three more miracles in verse 23 all the way to verse 8 in chapter 9, okay? Miracles. And then we get meat, very specific and heavy and weighty passage about discipleship in verses 9 through 17. And then we get bread again, right? Three more miracles. But wait, there's a bonus miracle in those three. There's actually four, and that's the bacon, all right? You get the bonus. So that's where we are for the next several weeks, verses eight, uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9. It's a club sandwich. There's your literary metaphor for the day, okay? That's where we are. So this morning, we're going to look at the first slice of bread, three miracles of Jesus in chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, and we're going to learn three things about the nature of a Jesus-centered ministry. Okay, three things about the nature of a Jesus-centered ministry. And the first one comes from verses 1 through 4. The first thing I want you to see about the nature of a Jesus-centered ministry is that it overcomes physical bias. A Jesus-centered ministry overcomes physical bias. You can see this in verses 1 through 4. Read with me. And by the way, today's sermon, I'm just going to read and explain. Read and explain. We're just going to kind of just walk right through it together. Okay, I'm not, you're ready to go. That's right. Look at verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Now, that little passage there is very loaded because from time to time, you'll see this through the Gospels. And there's a sense in which Matthew is trying to give you an idea of Jesus' influence. It's like, 
how many followers would he have on Instagram or Twitter right now? Not Facebook, because evidently we don't do that anymore. But it's kind of on its way out. But this, he's trying to give you a sense of Jesus' popularity based on his teaching and his ministry, which is true. But you also are, uh, Matthew is also trying to inform us um, as to um, the potential dangers associated with this. Because if you live in Palestine, which in the eyes of, of, of Jewish authorities is already kind of like the problem child in the Roman government, um, a crowd like this that Jesus would, would generate would, would be a threat to the social stability in the, in the social um, environment. And so the local authorities, the Roman soldiers that would live in this area, would be very keen on any kind of crowd that would follow and who was causing that crowd to form because it would be a, a seedbed of hostility, a seedbed of social unrest, and the Romans cannot have. They worked very hard, right, to, to bring rest and to bring their peace. And so when a Roman soldier uh, would see this, they would, they would be very concerned. So, so Matthew's saying, yes, Jesus is gaining influence, but there's some potential here for trouble, okay? So keep that in mind, especially when we see a Roman soldier here in a few minutes. Okay. Verse 2, right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him. Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So this is a mind-blowing moment in the Bible because in Jesus' day, particularly in Jewish culture, lepers were like the poster child for uncleanliness. Physical uncleanliness, ritual uncleanliness, religious uncleanliness. Lepers were ostracized from society, and they, lived, they literally lived out in leper colonies outside of the main thing. So verse 2, right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him, not some distance, but right at Jesus' feet, and spoke to him. He said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What is he even doing here? How did he even get up the nerve to venture into a large crowd, verse 1, like this, okay? So you, you can remember when COVID came just a few years ago, right? And how everybody all of a sudden became an epidemiologist, and whereas we were sneezing and coughing and wiping our nose and rubbing our eyes with our hands, all of a sudden, we were all anathema to each other. You can't go anywhere. You can't go into any building for two or three weeks, even in Rutherford County. We were shut down because we all potentially had the potential to give somebody else something really terrible that we didn't really know anything about, okay? It was really severe. It was really strong. It was kind of scary for a lot of people. This was a known illness in Jesus' day with no cure. Okay? So I want you to feel the weight of all the social mores and expectations that are being broken in this moment. Okay? It's like the guy from Liberia in 2016 who was a native Liberian but an American, and he came over and landed in Dallas, and he had Ebola. That's what this gentleman has done to Jesus and this crowd in this moment. Okay. So the fact that this is even happening is a life-threatening nightmare for everybody involved. Okay. To say nothing of the social 
things that are being broken. So what will Jesus do? What did the different people in the crowd expect Jesus to do? Well, not this, verse 3. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. And this gesture proves at least as shocking as the leper's original approach and request. I mean, there's all this shock, all this horror, all this, can you believe what is happening? And then Jesus says a word. Actually, he does something different. Did you notice? He reached out his hand and he touched him. Okay. You wouldn't touch your face when COVID was going around. And Jesus willingly reaches out and touches a man with a disease that you know if you touch it, you're going to get it. And he heals him. It's an intentional, not intentional because he has to touch him to heal him. He doesn't have to do that. We'll see that in a minute. But he does it to communicate that his ministry is going to overcome any kind of physical bias that might be present in the society. A Jesus-centered ministry overcomes this kind of bias. A Jesus-centered ministry is not concerned with taboos toward those that our society may outcast because of their health issues. And Jesus did this in full recognition that some could even accuse him of breaking the law because to touch a leper was to defile yourself. There's just something different about Jesus that we're going to see the rest of this gospel all the way to the end. A Jesus-centered ministry is not concerned with our taboos when it comes to people with physical issues. Just not concerned with that. And that's not all. Number two, a Jesus-centered ministry overcomes ethnic bias, racial bias. Look at verse 5. And when he got into town, after that bomb went off, Jesus walks into Capernaum, and a Roman centurion came to him. A centurion is a Gentile. He's a commander of a division of imperial troops. Centurion, referencing century, meaning 100. So up to 100 troops would be under this person's command, oftentimes smaller, 60 or 80. And these guys, oh, how do I describe these guys? They are, they're the backbone of Roman security. So they are there in this, in Capernaum, in Capernaum, to, um, they are there to provide social discipline, if you will, okay? So if you put yourself in the shoes of an Orthodox Jew, you would have considered this guy, this Roman centurion, unclean because of his race, because of his politics, and because of his Roman subjugation over you as a people group, okay? And there's nothing you can do to vote him out of power, by the way. So a centurion, okay, it was bad enough a leper, right? Somebody who could get everybody sick, walked right up to Jesus. And then Jesus touched him and healed him. Now, this Gentile pig has walked right up to Jesus. And what does he say? <laughs> Pleads with him. He says, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. 
So centurions moved around a lot. They're like you know, plant directors for large companies that have plants all over the world. They would just move them you know, from different trips all over, all over the world. So centurions didn't have families in the traditional sense, if you know what I mean. But because they were paid well, it was common for them to have servants who moved with them, and they became like family to them. Okay? And if you ever see the word household in the Bible, it would always include any servants that were a part of your, your family. Okay? So it's not unusual for a centurion to have very close relationship with the servants and be dear to one another. They would be family. They would be family. So if you're wondering why the centurion is breaking all of these social norms that would normally, these ethnic social norms, that would normally prevent him from engaging even in a conversation with Jesus or Jew, it's not just because of what he sees in Jesus. It's because he loves his servant. He loves his servant. And Jesus said, am I to come and heal him? Uh, does anybody, uh, look at verse 7. Does anybody have a question mark at the end of that sentence? Is it a question mark? Does anybody have a period? Oh, good. good, 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 good. Look at the Bible. You know why that is? It's because there are no punctuation marks in Greek. None. Just one big sentence. <laughs> it just keeps going. You, we get to make it up in English based on the context, and we're really, 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 really good at it, okay? But the reason it's there is there, there, there's differences. It's because we don't, we don't have one, okay? So if it's a question, am I, where is it? Is it, am I to come to him and heal him? There's some emphasis there. Or is it, am I to come and heal him? Or is it a statement and not a question, like, I'm going to come and heal him, okay? It could be, Either of those. I think it's the second. I think it's, am I to come and heal him? And that's because of what happens in verse 8. Look at verse 8. The Lord, Lord, the centurion replied. Underline the word Lord. So this means person of authority. It could mean sir, or it could carry with it religious messianic overtones. Or at least it could reveal what's, what, what for the speaker thinks of this person and his authority and his ability whether it has specific uh, master-servant or relationship associated with it or not. So at minimum, you have this Roman who recognizes something about Jesus and either out of respect to him as a human being or out of recognition that he can do something, that he, he believes he can do something that he as a Roman centurion cannot do. He calls him Lord. And as this un word unfolds to the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see that it comes to mean God. Lord, the centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, here's where we see some of this ethnic bias that Jesus is getting ready to overcome. Because Jews do not go into Gentile homes. They just don't do it. They're not people, really, because they're Gentile. They're not Jewish. So they just would not go. And the centurion knows this. He knows this. He recognizes this social moray. And yet, amazingly, he believes in Jesus' ability to cure his servant from a distance just by a command, just by a word. 
And he bases his belief in what Jesus can do based on his own experience of what he can do as a military leader. Okay? Just as he can command others to carry out the orders that he himself has been given, and he can expect their instant and complete obedience. So that's what he believes about Jesus' ability under God's authority over an illness, over a paralyzation. He believes about Jesus that with a word, he can make his servant walk again in the same way that he believes with the word he can send his soldier to do this or to do that. Okay. And we'll talk about the faith part of this here at the end. But for now, keep reading because this is where Jesus is going to use this experience to communicate something about the gospel and about ethnicity and about race. Okay. Look at verses 10 through 12. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone, underline the phrase, in Israel, with so great a faith. Verse 11, I tell you that many will come from the east and the west. Who are those? Gentiles. All the other people groups. To do what? to share the banquet with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, where? In the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, who's that? The Jews. Will be thrown into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whew! What's going on here? So... One of the prevailing biblical images or illustrations or metaphors for life that's in the finally established kingdom of God, it's a banquet. It's a feast. And if you go back to Isaiah 25 and Isaiah 56, you'll see that Isaiah projects this feast or prophesies about this feast, and it's for all people groups. It's for all of us. You and I are going to be a part of the banquet. Okay? And Isaiah saw it coming. But the sentiment in Jesus' day was that that feast would be mostly about Israel. And if anybody else is there, it's for them as Israelites to gloat over their victory over their enemies, the other people groups. That was the sentiment. It was a militaristic sentiment. It's one of the reasons why they're hoping for a military king, physical king of a Messiah. Okay? But what does Jesus say in verses 11 and 12? He says the opposite is going to happen. I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is the faith will have an intimate fellowship with the great Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because they won't reject Jesus as Messiah. They will embrace him. And what happens when Jesus dies and is resurrected and the church begins and the gospel goes out? What do the Jews do? They reject him. I'm not about your ethnic bias. A Jesus-centered ministry is for all the peoples. I'm building a kingdom of all the people. And it's my people who aren't going to get it. That needs to be true of the church. There are no people groups that we reject because they're not our people group. The gospel is for all the peoples. I've read Revelation 5. I've read Revelation 21 and 22. Whether you like it or not, 
the white aren't the majority. The Americans aren't the majority. He's building a kingdom of heaven for all the peoples of all time. And the gospel is for all of them. And if we believe it, we're going to take it to all of them. So it overcomes physical bias and ethnic bias. And lastly, verse 14 and 15, very quickly, gender bias. Jesus went into Peter's house and he saw his mother-in-law, that's Peter's mother-in-law, lying in bed with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to serve him. So a Jesus-centered ministry overcomes physical, ethnic, and now gender bias. This is a third kind of healing, a third kind of illness, and it's a third form of bias that's overcome. There's not a whole lot to develop here, but you just need to know that men did not touch women in this tradition. And Jesus decides to touch her and heal her, and he's not going to allow the traditions that keep a man, a Jewish man, from touching a Jewish woman in this very simple and, and kind way to dictate the reach of his ministry. And so a Jesus-centered ministry also overcomes gender bias. So we have physical, ethnic, and gender. And each of these is illustrative of the fact that Jesus sees every single person as made in the image of God and therefore worthy of his love. Every single person person, whatever barrier human beings might create that keeps them from talking to one another and serving one another, Jesus does away with. If you are using age, if you are using geography, if you are using politics, whatever you are using to erect a barrier between you and another person Jesus-centered ministry overcomes that barrier and demolishes it, okay? Jesus is an equal opportunity dispenser of grace, okay? But it's bigger than that. For all the barriers that it overcomes, a Jesus-centered ministry has an ultimate goal, and that goal is to point to Jesus' ultimate act of ministry, which is the cross. Where do I get that? Verse 16 and 17. When evening came, they brought to Jesus many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes verse 4, okay, which says, He himself took our weaknesses and he carried our diseases. And what's really interesting about that quote is that if you keep going, you learn something else about why, what the Messiah would ultimately do. So let's turn in our Bibles back to Isaiah 53, Okay, Isaiah 53, verse 4, which I've always found it interesting that time for the Song of Solomon. Okay. Isaiah 53, verse 4, yet he, in a prophecy, speaking of the Messiah of Jesus, he himself bore our sicknesses, he carried our pains, 
But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. Okay, then it turns. Verse 5. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. You see what Isaiah does. He takes verse 4. He himself bore our, our sicknesses and our, um, our, our pains. And so Matthew takes that verse 4 and he says, See, Isaiah predicted this would happen, that Jesus would come and he would bring to bear the reality of the kingdom of God on our actual bodies. And he would heal this person and heal that person. And with the word, a demon would come out and this and the other. But it's, it's pointing to a greater healing. It's pointing to a greater fix. Not necessarily, not just our physical problems, which will end when we are part of the kingdom of heaven. It's solving our physical issue. You can see that in verse 4. He himself bore our sicknesses and pains. And if you just keep going in verse 5 and 6, the, the, the sicknesses and pains are actually defined as what? Rebellion. That's our real problem. Sicknesses, our real problem is iniquity. Our real problem is rebellion. Our real problem is that we want to go our own way. And that, that is what Jesus finally, ultimately healed us of. Whatever healing, all throughout the Gospels, whatever healing Jesus does to extend an earthly life is meant to show us the healing he does for our eternal life. His answer to our prayer, Lord, if you are willing, we know that you're able. The leper knows he's able. Peter knows he's able. The centurion knows he's able. And we're going to see multiple, multiple opportunities throughout the rest of the gospel. They all know he's able. And they all say, if you are willing, you could heal me of X, Y, and Z. The answer may or may not be yes. But if we ask him to heal of us of our rebellion and in sin, we know by looking at the cross and the resurrection that the answer will always and forever be yes. Okay. So whatever we see Jesus do in the meantime, that's a blessing and a gift and relieves a pain and relieves a suffering, give him praise. But if he doesn't, give him praise because whether he does or not is not a sign of his ultimate love for you. The sign of his ultimate love for you is that he dealt with the eternal problem the cross. This leper still died. This centurion servant still died. Peter's mother-in-law passed away. They got a temporary reprieve because God wanted to use them to point us to the eternal reprieve. And he may do the same for some of you for different things. He's relieved me of all kinds of things and he has left me in all kinds of things but that's not the basis by which I judge whether he is for me or whether he is capable. I believe because the cross happened and the resurrection happened, and so we believe and trust him for those, that reason alone. Okay. So our ministry needs to the world needs to look like that. And if it looks like that, there's not going to be a person that we don't, that, there's not going to be a person that we hold bias toward. We're going to overcome that bias.
because Jesus overcame that bias. That's how you got here if you're a Christian. Somebody jumped an obstacle, plowed right through because they, don't, they didn't want to make any assumptions about you because Jesus certainly doesn't. You're made in the image of God and you're worthy of his love. And the world is out there made in the image of God and they are worthy of our love and our ministry. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, word for a lot of, lot of reasons. It's, um, it is at once challenging and comforting. It is challenging in that we so need our ministry as individuals and as a church to reflect the ministry of Jesus, and it is at once comforting because we so know that you love us and died for us and overcame the power of sin and death to prove it. So um, we ask for the faith to believe and trust. We know what you're willing and capable of doing in our own lives. And even if you don't, we know because of the cross that you, will, you are always working for our good. And we want to be a people in a church that reflect this gospel ministry to the world. Help us do it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.